Palm Sunday, welcome. Really glad to see you. Just in case you don't know what Palm Sunday is, real quick, it is the week that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, starting the Holy Week. Uh, it was a time of great praise, which uh, hopefully we have, we have done as well today. Uh, it is also the time that, that started a really hard week. So we're going to look at it and hopefully learn some good things from God uh, in his word today. Let's pray and get down to business. Merciful and holy God, I pray that you would do profound things, that you would give us hearts for worship, that you would, understand, that you would help us to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live in relationship with you, the purpose for which you saved us. God, we are in such desperate need of your help. I pray that you would raise our eyes to your glory, and I pray that our worship would not be distracted, but that it would be sincere, not just as we sing, but as we live. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're like me, I think you'll agree that going to the dentist is like a really intense game of peekaboo. Have you noticed that? Like, I went to the dentist this past week, and Dr. Frank Dunlap, who, who goes to the church, I don't know if he's here today or not, he is my dentist, and he is, he is a great guy. It is such an interesting thing if, if you're not a dentist to go to the dentist because you don't really know what's going on. And, and Dr. Dunlap doesn't really help you in that. He starts in the middle of a sentence like, while he's out in the hallway and he's, he's asking a question, but he's not even in the room yet, and he hadn't said hello or anything, and so you're, you're kind of sitting there going, is he talking to me? But then you realize the question is in some vague reference to my sermon last week, and so you're like, oh gosh, he is talking to me, and I guess that eventually he's going to come into this room and, and talk further, and, and so you're sitting in this chair and you're, you're trying to turn around to engage him in this conversation. But as soon as you turn this way, some lady sneaks in from your left side and she's wearing a mask. And you've never met her before and she's coming down on you all of a sudden with a tool that looks like a curved ice pick. And she starts to, to fiddle around on your teeth very dangerously near your very sensitive gums, and Dr. Dunlap is over here, and you still haven't really seen him because he sits behind you, and you're laid back, held hostage by this woman who you cannot see, and he's asking you theological questions, and you're trying to answer them, but you don't want to move your mouth because she's got a sharp object right there by your gums, and so you're going, I think what we need to say, and then you're like, yeah. You just kind of give up. And right about then, and this is where it gets really weird at the dentist's office, Dr. Dunlap, who, who you really haven't seen to this point, fires up a machine. And it, if you know what a Dremel is, it sounds like a Dremel. It, it's this real high-pitched drill-type sounding thing. And you, in your imagination, because you're insecure, can only imagine that it is an object of torture. So, like that, and it's going on and on and on, and you're sitting there going, oh my gosh, I think it's getting closer. 
You know, you're, and, and you're like, I want to turn, I want to turn, but the lady in the mask has me held hostage. I can't turn. And, and you're, Whoa! and it goes on for like 25 minutes. And every once in a while, he'll come and he'll fiddle in your mouth. And, you know, the lady with the mask jumps out and he jumps in. And he goes, Whoa! and you're like, what on earth is going on here? You have no idea. No idea whatsoever. Can't look back behind you. Just sitting there and taking it. Like 30, 45 minutes later, they, they, they take your slobber bib off and, and they say, okay, sit up, look at the pictures, here we are. And you're like, of course, right? <laughs> I knew all that was happening. They show you pictures of your gums and stuff and it's nasty. That's kind of what today's sermon's gonna be like. <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at the triumphal entry. <laughs> I'm going to read you the whole thing just to give us some context. Again, this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It's the start of Holy Week, uh, and it's an interesting passage. And when he had said these things, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Which is a thoroughly reasonable question. And they said, the Lord has need of it. And I guess that satisfied them. For they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowds said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent the very stones would cry out. The question you ought to be asking is why are eight verses dedicated to a donkey? The donkey, in my mind, is like the high-powered Dremel. It's, it's the drill. What's going on with the donkey? We've got 12 verses, eight of which are dedicated to securing a donkey. We're starting the last seven days. It's the Holy Week. I, I get that Jesus is going to be resurrected, but, but why eight verses for a donkey? What, what's so important about this donkey? To add some further intrigue, you need to know that Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 and 10 actually prophesies about the donkey. I don't know if you knew that. It's not just eight verses in the New Testament. 
It's a prophecy in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what we know is that God chose the donkey at least 500 years before Jesus rode the donkey. That, I think that's significant. You, you would think that the donkey, it's a beast of burden, would be insignificant, but I think this is actually pretty significant. And what we find out from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, is that the donkey is supposed to carry the righteous king who brings salvation into Jerusalem. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. But Zechariah chapter 9, verses 10 says that the king will proclaim peace to all the nations and his dominion will... Dominion will go from sea to sea. It's not just going to be little Israel. It's going to be the whole world, this this king who's coming with salvation. That's his jurisdiction. That's his dominion. Zechariah 9, just to be very clear, is absolutely about the king who comes bringing salvation. But the donkey is kind of important. The donkey is kind of important because God chose it to carry the king into Jerusalem. Donkey's kind of a big deal. Why would God choose a donkey? That's the next question you have to ask. We get now that God chose a donkey. Why would God choose a donkey? It is my opinion that the donkey is a very accurate metaphor for a Christian. I get that this only confirms your suspicions, But I think the donkey is actually embedded into not only prophecy, but history. Because it's a type or a metaphor for Christians. Let's explore that just for a few moments. Just like the donkey, weren't we picked out beforehand? Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 says, He, that's God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption according to his purpose, to the purpose of his will. So we were picked out beforehand too. Here it says before the foundations of the world. I know what you're probably thinking. You're like, it's Palm Sunday. Is West really going to go into the doctrine of predestination? Will he try to defend such a controversial doctrine? I'm not here today to defend the controversial doctrine of predestination or election. Blessed as it is, (laughs) for it gives us security and the hope of unconditional love. But that's not my job today. That is not my job today. I quote this passage, which is clearly predestinarian, because it tells us that your life matters to God. And I think sometimes we forget that. The text says that our life matters to God, that we were not saved from our sin by accident. That our lives 
we're saved because God has a purpose for each and every one of us, not just the guys on a church staff, not just the guys who are leading ministries, every person here who has placed their faith in Jesus, it is because God chose us before the foundation of the world for his purposes. That is indisputably what Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five says. Let's not quibble over the doctrine. Let's just accept that which the text says and the implications of the text. God has a purpose for your salvation. Just like the donkey was chosen beforehand, we were chosen out beforehand. Just like the donkey, though, was tied to a post, I think Christians had their own post. Christians were tied to a sinful nature. It's a metaphor. See, John chapter 8, verse 34 says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's, that's really bad. Sin isn't something that you just kind of fiddle with. It's, it's a serious deal, and it's enslaving. It's enslaving. And we were, before we knew Christ, slaves to sin. Now, the Bible says we're slaves to righteousness. That's great. But let's not forget that we were slaves to sin. Donkey was tied to a post. Donkey is a beast of burden. This donkey, the text says, has never been ridden. Isn't that the saddest thing in the world? That an animal that has bred to be ridden has never been ridden nor can it be ridden while tied to a post. And I think that's the sad truth about us before Jesus delivered us as well. I remember I worked at a ranch up in Montana uh, summer before my senior year of high school with my older brother, Lewis, and, and we worked with a lot of horses, and the the head wrangler was a guy named Gary Metcalf, great guy, knew a lot about horses. And you'd bring horses down out of the mountains and into a corral, and we had probably 30, 40 horses, and, and we'd work with them almost every day, but you'd, you'd tie them by their halters to hitching posts and, and wait until we were going to work with each of these horses. And for the most part, that was fine, but every once in a while, a horse would just kind of get a bee in his bonnet and decide, I'm going to test this hitching post. And pulling against their halter and the rope that tethered them to the hitching post, they'd rear back. Normally that wasn't very successful, but every once in a while, a horse would actually pull the horizontal bar from its moorings. And the danger there is that there are other horses tied to the same post. And so all of a sudden you've got this post, and it's like a tug of war between a couple of 1,200, 1,300 pound animals. And they're like backing up and they're panicked and this post is going all over the place and there's other horses and there's cowboys and if this post hit these ankles, they're broken. It's really dangerous. So Gary comes up with a solution. I think it's brilliant. I'd like to share it with you. He takes the horses that have gotten in the habit of rearing back and he gets an inner tube and he tethers them to the vertical posts, which are cemented in by the inner tube, straight to the halter, which won't break. 
And he just leaves those horses that have been rearing back sitting tethered to this vertical post by an inner tube. And eventually it happens. The horse decides, I think I know how to get away. And he kind of rears back in his own strength. And he back, 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 back. And he's got a lot of strength in those back legs. And he's, he's way back, way back. That inner tube stretching, stretching, stretching. And it doesn't break. In fact, the elasticity of it works in Gary's, not the horse's favor. That horse comes, boom, just slaps. That really hurt. <laughs> slaps his head. Horse never rears back again. Here's the problem with sin, and I think this applies to Christians and certainly non-Christians too. We think we can get out of it whenever we want. And in our own strength, we'll say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get out of this. Pull back. I don't think we can do it. I think only God can do it. Somebody has to untether us. Otherwise, we're just going to live life in a, a varied state of elasticity. It's all... That's all we're going to do. We're going to kind of make peace with sin if we're doing this in our own strength. Rear back, bang. Let's just sit right here by the post for a while. Okay, rest, rest. Let's try it again. Bang. Let's try it again. As Christians, as non-Christians for sure, but even as Christians, we have to pray that God would help us out of our sin. We can't do it in our own strength and our own effort. We have to rely on God. Just like the donkey was untied from the post for a purpose, the good news is that Jesus has untied us from our sin and for a purpose. Why was the donkey freed from the post? What was the donkey's purpose? Why were we freed from our sin? What was God's purpose? Donkey was freed from the post so that he could carry Christ to his glory, right? That's what the text says. Eight verses, very specific. Here's, you're going to go, you're going to get the donkey, say the master of it. That means Jesus is claiming authority over the donkey you're going to say the master has need of it. The guy who supposedly owned it's going to say, okay, which is weird. And you're going to deliver the donkey from the post so that the donkey can carry me to my glory. Isn't that why we were saved? Weren't we delivered from our captivity to sin so that we could be free to carry Christ to his glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God. That's kissing cousins to carrying Christ to his glory. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to love him forever. 
Our ultimate purpose in salvation is to carry Christ to his glory. Let's look now at verses 36 through 40. These last five verses, I just didn't want to to finish this thing without covering these verses. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began, and I'm going to quote it a little bit differently here, began rejoicingly to praise. I think that's a better translation. And as the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicingly to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. I think that's really cool. The multitude of the disciples, we're going to focus in a little bit on verse 37. The multitude of the disciples began rejoicingly to praise God for all the mighty works they'd seen. I just want to make a couple of observations principally about verse 37. I just don't know that you see the mighty works that God has done unless you're his disciple. Unless you are an active follower of Jesus, not, not a spectator, not a consumer, not one who sits passively, but one who follows Jesus and where Jesus goes to advance his kingdom, so you go to advance his kingdom, where Jesus invests in people, so you invest in people. I think when Jesus said, Go therefore, or as you go, make disciples. Baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I've taught you. I think it's the kindest thing he could have done. He didn't busy us. He enabled us to see the great works that he still does. That's the first point. You're not going to see the great works of God unless you're a disciple. I, I just think that's the way God rigged it. Second thing I'd like to tell you is this. Disciples see great works, and therefore disciples become great worshipers. Isn't that what the text says? If we look at it again, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicingly to praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen. Disciples see the great works that God does and therefore become great worshipers. Literally, they began rejoicing to praise. I, I know the text makes it sound like there, there are two verbs that, well, I'll read it. The disciples began to rejoice and praise. But the first one is an adverbial participle. I'm kind of geeky. They began rejoicingly to praise God for all the great works that God had done. They began rejoicingly to praise God. I just want you to know that that's my prayer. 
That's my prayer for Grace Bible Church. I pray that we increasingly, I pray that I increasingly get better and better at worship because of all the great things we get to see God do because Monday through Saturday we're out making disciples and we're seeing God do great things through our feeble little efforts. That's that's my prayer. That's my Sunday prayer. That's not just my Palm Sunday prayer. It's true on Palm Sunday. That's my every Sunday of the year prayer. That disciples at GBC would see God work so profoundly that we would rejoicingly praise God. Just so we're clear here, that does not just mean sing. That singing is a great way to rejoicingly praise God. But the idea is that we so love God for the great things he is doing in and through us that we come to worship and go, Lord, I am so excited. I am so impassioned. I am so eager to rejoice before you for all that I've seen you do. That is our goal. That's that's our prayer. They began rejoicingly to praise the great things that Jesus did. It's interesting. They didn't have any idea what was coming in the next week. It's got to be so fun on Palm Sunday. They're coming into Jerusalem. Jesus is, is back to the holy city. The disciples have seen so much that is so good. It must be so fun to worship. They they simply couldn't know the spiritual storm that was descending on Jerusalem. They could not yet see the dark clouds that were rolling in. Now Jesus knew. That's the great advantage of omniscience. But the disciples couldn't know, right? There's no way they could know the spiritual storm that was coming. Let me ask you a question. I really want you to think about this. I I think this matters. I don't know that this is so much part of the text. It's part of the context. And it's certainly a question that pertains to Grace Bible Church's circumstances. Was God any less sovereign in the week to come? Great storm's coming. The question we have to ask ourselves is, was God any less in control that coming Friday? We call it Good Friday. Good for us. Was he any less sovereign in the week to come? Was he any less sovereign when Jesus was arrested? Was he any less sovereign when he was convicted in a kangaroo court and he's, he's beaten to a pulp, literally? Was he any less sovereign then? Was he any less sovereign when, when Jesus, his only begotten son, was crucified upon a cross? When the world literally went dark for three hours? Was he any less sovereign then? It's a question we have to answer. The answer, of course, is no. He was no less sovereign. In fact, the perspective of time 
has given us the very clear answer that God's greatest work, his greatest evidence of sovereignty was done in that exact moment, during that exact week. God's greatest display of sovereignty took place in the darkest week of history, right? The darkest week of history, in fact, is what gave us redemption. It's what gave us salvation. It's what gave us security. All the reasons that we worship here today, it's because of that week and what God did in that week. God was no less sovereign. God demonstrated his sovereignty most profoundly in those dark days. We've had some pretty hard stuff at Grace Bible Church last couple of weeks. I would even say dark stuff. And the reality is, overall as a church, we've had far less than we probably deserve. But these last couple of weeks have been hard, haven't they? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, rejoice. Look, no Christian should rejoice over darkness. That's not what I'm asking you to do. No Christian should ever rejoice over darkness, but Christians should rejoice that God is overcoming darkness, right? Because sometimes what we think is, this is so hard, where did God go? And Passion Week says he's doing his best work. But you've lowered your eyes to the circumstances. And so we miss the blessing of expectation that God is still on the move. God has done his greatest work, in fact, turning darkness into light. Going through Friday so that we might have Easter. That's his very greatest work. Let's all, whether it's sunny outside or the clouds are rolling in, lift our eyes. How about that? Let's all lift our eyes in expectation that God is still sovereign. Let's all pray that we continue to see his most mighty works. And if it takes storms to see God's glory, so be it. Back to the text. Let me close with this. You want to know the key to consistent donkey praise? That, that a donkey, and that's what we are, that a donkey would praise in sunny or stormy weather, praise that persists in all circumstances, and by the way, Luke put up a text on Psalm 90 that declared that our goal is to praise every day. I didn't tell him to. I think that's just God's providence working through his spirit in Luke. Really loved that verse. What's, what's the key to every day donkey praise? I think it's 
just remembering that we're a bunch of donkeys. Could have used other words. <laughs> the point is, this isn't about us. That's going to be the key to your consistent praise. It's not about us. It's not about our wisdom. It's not about our strategies. It's not about our reputations. It's just not. We are the beasts of burden. We're the beasts of burden. Set free to carry the king to his glory. That's, that's our goal. That's our mission. We're the beasts of burden. It's not about us. It's about the king. We're here to carry the king to his glory. It's not about us. It's about the king. I think the text says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. We're the beasts of burden. We carry the king to his glory. All praise in all times to the king. That's the goal. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to have such a high view of you that our faith in you transcends our circumstances. Help us to know that our goal in sun or storm is to continue to carry you to your glory. God, I pray that you'd give us strength and hope by your spirit to continue to strive for your glory. God, thanks that you're magnificent. Thank you that you have given us a role in your glory, in your kingdom's expansion. I pray that we would trust you in every moment of every day and that our lives would be marked by the hope of Christ and the redemption and the restoration that we all have in Christ. God, may it be true. Amen.